0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, uh, part of last Sunday's scriptural revelation, on last Sunday, it exposed how miracles are in of themselves, they've never served as an adequate uh, mechanism to spiritually resurrect the dead or, or regenerate the hearts of people spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. That was quite easy to discern uh, As the members of the Sanhedrin, they had confessed that there was a noteworthy miracle that had been taken place, uh, yet nonetheless, they schemed and and they strictly warned the apostles Peter and John uh, to remain silent about Jesus. Similarly, uh, a conflict arose. It was Moses uh, and Pharaoh. Long ago, it revealed that miracles do not serve as a catalyst uh, uh, to propagate salvation. Pharaoh, rather, responded by hardening his heart. But to initiate spiritual rebirth or or to reverse uh, the depths of depravity that that hold the human soul captive, uh, the Holy Spirit harnesses a different force a much more powerful force and mighty uh, mighty more mighty than all, any visible means miracle signs and wonders uh, no instead the power to convert the soul uh, to set the captives free it's vested in the same source of power our lord unleashed when he created the universe out of nothing you may be asking it's like what source? Where do we find such a such an immense power to create, you ask? Well, Hebrews 11 verse 3 assures, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared, folks, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is also the same passage, by the way, that states, without this kind of faith, without faith, uh, without belief in creation, yeah, it's impossible to please God. You may have heard a Latin phrase, ex nihilo, been passed around in theological circles it's often attached to the Christian doctrine of creation uh, which means it means out of nothing ex nihilo means out of nothing in Latin uh, note that ex nihilo isn't just a story arising out of an isolated account in Genesis, but how also The balance of Scripture, even including and throughout the New Testament, uh, it all expects us to interpret the account of creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It isn't just Genesis. It isn't just a poetic story from creation. The New Testament expects us to interpret it in light of the new revelation uh, that we have in the New Testament. The origin of the universe was instigated by a verbal proclamation of God's word. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Later on the sixth day, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so spontaneous creation it is also the reason why the fossil record does not reveal creatures gradually morphing from one life form to another you know like a a short neck giraffe that slowly over millennia becomes a long neck giraffe with every with every Phase in between, or a short neck, uh, short trunked elephant, slowly migrating, or anything r- really like an elephant. We just find elephants. No, no. The the fossil record documents distinct species, distinct species. Not every single form of life from one change to another. Um, if it hoped to substantiate evolution science would not need to uncover one missing link you hear hear them talk about some from time to time the missing link no no they wouldn't need one missing link as they claim instead science would need to unearth billions and billions of links links as hypothetically land mammals morphed slowly over time from one life form to another uh Yet, during that time, during that extraordinary, long, extraordinarily long length of time, billions of years they now propose, every time they try to put things together, they, they realize there's just not enough time. They keep adding more time. During that same extraordinary length of time, all these diverse species retained essentially the same physical characteristics. They have two eyes, a nose, a mouth, a tongue. Most often with land mammals, a a tail. Genitalia, both male and female, even though they continued to develop separately. But to an astonishing climax, where that progression of all species stopped at the same time, in a mature stage of development. And and essentially today, all species are fully developed as basically static life forms as observed across all of the earth. And while attempting to explain the anatomy of the eye, it, it would have the eye would have remained a useless appendage as it took all of that time and space and chance to finally have the perfect shape, the essential components to make an eye useful and then attach itself to the brain so that it can refract light and imagery uh, so that each species uh, developing separately could uh, could see. Uh, how How many of these... So the eye would have been a useless appendage. You could say the same about uh, uh, the the reproductive anatomy of humans or animals. Uh, it won't function. Doctors, fertility doctors, will tell you it just won't function unless it's fully developed and and, and everything is just perfect. So of all these uh, extra organs, uh, how many how many of these useless appendages? Uh, that it took all this time, space, and chance to develop, are still developing. How many parts of the human body or any animal that you look at still have these useless parts that are still changing shape and becoming different things? No, they were all fully developed organs and appendages and fingers and tongues. Uh, No, every species around the globe is uniformly complete, just as God had spoke. Billions of years in evolution, it is a theory uh, of explanation preached by spiritually dead people. Folks, we we must always beware that uh, there exists sometimes an infinite gap between science, that which we can measure and reproduce like the speed of sound, we can, we can measure it. We can get out our, out our tape measure and measure it, right? We can do it again and again. Uh, what science teaches and what theory is. We need to discern this when we are reading. Similarly to how God first spoke, he, he, giving breath to living creatures, ultimately uh, even to mankind through Adam and Eve, uh, similar to how God first spoke, God's word also breathes eternal life into spiritually dead men and women uh, through, again, the verbal proclamation of his word. Due to the fall and God's curse on uh, after Adam had sinned, all all of Adam's descendants have been born dead in sin. And the way that God supplies spiritual resurrection, it's not through miracles, signs, and wonders and things that we see, but exclusively through the proclamation, the preaching, the sharing of the eternal word of God. And preventing the proclamation of this word is what the Sanhedrin is attempting to do in Acts chapter 4. They have sought to prevent the powerful proclamation of the word. They therefore strictly prohibit Peter and John. They're warning them to not teach any longer at all in this name of Christ. And we're going to find the reaction of the early church, the early Christians, uh, to such a command contained in verses 23 through thirty one of Acts chapter 4 so the following is what Peter and and John report to the church after they're released uh, essentially we've been instructed now to to not preach according to the Great Commission to go and tell uh, to all corners of the earth uh, not to mention the name of Christ uh, we've been commanded to stop preaching Christ and the gospel and And that name through which so many thousands in Jerusalem have already been... It's not that. Verses 23 to 31 reveal the church's reaction that serves. It is a marvelous pattern for our prayers. We'll read as far as verse 28 today as they they begin by glorifying God for what He has already accomplished. First, they praise God's glory and infinite power displayed through creation. And and next, they recount how Psalm 2, which was our scripture reading earlier, uh, has been fulfilled through the cross at Calvary. So we have God's word fulfilled in these two instances. And then next Sunday, you don't want to miss next Sunday. Next Sunday... In verses twenty nine through thirty one, we're going to learn how to pray the effective prayer of a righteous man or woman. How to pray an effective prayer? Are you wondering why so many of your prayers just seem to fail to come to fruition? Uh, we're going to discover why as we observe the early church's formula uh, for powerful and effective prayer. That will be next Sunday. Today. We look at the introduction and the body, uh, the shape that their prayer uh, takes as they respond to the command to stop preaching. Folks, this reveals solid apostolic prayer. I've titled today's message, by the way, Kiss the Son. Reading from verses 23 to 28, when Peter and John had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, oh Lord, is it, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said... Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise futile things? The king of the earth, kings of the earth, took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. I acknowledge that we are stopping here kind of mid-prayer, kind of mid-stride, but there are important qualities we need to note about this prayer of the early church. This is before they opened up their primary request and petition to God. Uh, Number one, Very important. Number one is that they all lifted their voices to God uh, with one accord. With one accord. That means they were were in harmony about how they intellectually viewed or what they thought about God. The God to whom they, they prayed. You know, they didn't all contribute their own diverse ideas about God who He is, and, and what He does, and what He's like. Uh, no, the, the church possessed a doctrinal harmony in their biblical theology. This prayer, uh, it began by addressing God as creator of the universe. The land, the sea, the heavens, everything that is in them. In other words, their prayer begins by addressing God as, Infinitely powerful, he he can do anything. Hold that thought, hold that thought. Because many today do not truly believe God is omnipotent or all powerful. Uh, they they only say that they believe it. Still, the church begins by praying to to their God, possessing sovereign power to create. And then they are going to progress from God's sovereignty in creation to His power and sovereignty in orchestrating human history through the actions of man. Hold on. Hold on to your seats when we get to that. But let's just start with creation. This part should be easy. Should be easy. Psalm 19 reads... The heavens declare the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And what the psalmist King David, in this instance, is revealing is that the order of creation itself reveals God's power to create. In fact, poetically, David suggests creation speaks, teaches us, it tells us things about God when we walk out our door. A little too antiquated, a little too Old Testament for us. Uh, Well, Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? The Apostle Paul says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So there's no excuse in this this circumstance. In Revelation 4, verse 11, another New Testament citation, the 24 elders who, who kneel and bow to the throne of our Lord, they're casting their crowns before Him. They glorify Him by stating in unison... Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Exalting this same eternal Son who sits on his throne, the Apostle John introduces his gospel, the gospel of John. This is the introduction now of the Gospel of John. And he does so by revealing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as creator, the agent of creation, before ever revealing him as our redeemer. John suggests you must first know that he is our creator, and exactly like the opening chapter of Genesis, the opening words of John's gospel state in the beginning. In the beginning, writes John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, reference to Jesus. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man now we know that the the word there the the word that is referenced we know as Jesus because just a few verses later we are told in John one verse fourteen that that word became flesh and he dwelt among us. is this how you view Jesus Christ as God the Son and as divine Creator? If not, if not, what false concoction of God do you hold in your mind that you are worshiping? A God who does not and cannot create ex nihilo? Just can't do it? A God who, you know, moseyed on in sometime after creation? Dang came in on the sly, uh, maybe gave a a little direction, maybe a gentle push to evolution so that things might kind of take off at some point, nudge it along somehow. Folks, such a God concocted in the human mind does not exist. I hope that is not who we are praying to. The earliest Christians... Apostles, they they lifted their voices in harmony, emphasizing first the divine majesty of God as creator. They use these words in verse 24. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Scripture isn't. This is just a, a small sampling of passages. Scripture isn't even remotely unclear about this. The psalmist tells us what we see outside our doors, the trees, uh, the the animals. All of creation isn't even remotely unclear about this. We we ought to be able to walk out and just, yeah, you know, yeah. I think that just popped out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's impossible. There's not enough time, space, and chance available. Um, wow. Wow. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 19, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's Jesus Christ himself assuring the sexes didn't evolve from a single-cell organism over an extremely long period of time. Now, I understand. A little grace here. Right? Little. You may be a visitor. You might be a genuine Christian. Uh, and this is simply the first time Uh, in your life that you've ever been challenged to consider from scripture, uh, to intellectually accept this. That's the little, but you must come to accept it. It is clearly what the word of God teaches. And that is authoritative, not some theory that people came up with in the last couple hundred years to explain what they are unwilling to believe. Um, the reason the doctrine of creation, a spontaneous creation, ex nihilo, is so essential, you'll follow me on this, is that if you do not believe in an omnipotent, powerful God, a power to create everything in six days, how are you going to believe Peter? Second Peter chapter 3, when Peter assures the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, And when our Lord returns, Peter assures us that Christ, our Redeemer, is going to spontaneously recreate the heavens and the earth in one day. By melting down all of the elements of the universe with intense heat, because, Peter says, we Christians are looking forward to living under a new heaven and a new earth. Where righteousness dwells. You can't you can't sidestep it. You can't do the end around. You can't wiggle out of creation. The Bible never asks us to or expects us to you know quite the opposite. We must see uh, this all has to do with the nature of God that you and I worship. The identity of the God whom you and I and everyone here. Uh, Hopefully, in unison, we are lifting up our voices in one accord to petition this one true and all powerful God. Not not all a bunch of diverse, contrasting ideas about God, but the one true God of Scripture. Uh, It may take you a moment to fathom all of this. I I understand that. I understand. Take take two or three minutes but should we be afraid of running off prospective members by insisting that Christians accept a six-day creation? No, no, not hardly. Because if we don't have the same God in mind when we pray, how could we lift our prayers and our request to God with one accord? We're praying to different gods. No, a church striving for doctrinal harmony uh, rather than ambiguity. It, uh, to For us to do that, it's not superfluous. It's not extra above and beyond. It's not inconvenient for us to come to what Scripture says and to believe it. Peter and his companions... It'd be Whoever they were, I, I would expect it, it was at least the twelve, maybe a room full of others as well. They are all addressing God with one voice, with one mind. Uh, when they cite the mouth of our father David, they refer to him as our father David, that predecessor, verse 25, through whom the Holy Spirit spoke the Holy Spirit did was speak through the mouth of David. Um, Holy Spirit spoke through David. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 Peter tells us that as the source of written scripture, written scripture now, as the source of written scripture holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost and that all of it was preserved by being written down being written down. Uh, Peter refers to it as every prophecy of Scripture. It's what was written down of prophets of old. Opening up a Hebrews uh, tells us that uh, God spoke long ago in the prophets in many portions and in many ways uh, these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Closing chapter of Revelation tells us don't add to the prophecies in this book. Follow me? This is also why we are told 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Holy Spirit is the source of all of Scripture written. And there are supplied numerous criteria and prerequisites in the Bible for identifying a true prophet. I don't have time to go into all of those qualifications again of a true prophet. We went through them shortly before Christmas. I can just assure one thing. You aren't one. You don't fit the criteria that Scripture lays out. Uh, there, there, is a, there is a false movement today, and, and it's growing big. It's a lot bigger than the couple hundred of us that meet here. It's a false movement called Word of Faith. It says every spirit-indwelled Christian can speak prophetically for God, uh, just like the Spirit did here through the mouth of David. They claim all they have to do is have enough faith to declare it. And my words, they say, become God's words. And God, therefore, must fulfill it. Sometimes you'll hear this movement described as the name it and claim it theology. Uh, They claim to speak for God. And often characterized, uh, it is characterized often by hearing them say, I declare it. I declare it, and they proceed to declare for themselves health, wealth, and prosperity. Yeah, I am successful. I am good looking. How am I doing? (laughs) Folks, that is not what the Spirit of God does through David in verses 25 and 26. In Psalm 2, which we read earlier together, David points directly at Jesus Christ as the coming Messiah. That is what a prophet does. Points everyone to Jesus Christ, not to fulfilling lusts of the world. Jesus said, these are the scriptures that teach about me. In chapter 3 of Acts, four different times, we are told by Peter that all of the prophets projected Jesus. That's the same thing that that the king that King David does here. It's a psalm where the Lord Yahweh uh, declares, "You are my son," and where God Himself says, "I have installed my king upon Zion." Again, a reference to Jerusalem. It's also a coronation psalm that says, "Pay homage to the son." Folks, Psalm 2 is a direct reference to receiving Christ as Israel's messianic king. Coronation Psalm. Receive the king. Homage in Hebrew, as I said during the scripture reading time, it literally means to kiss the king. Kiss the king who reigns. Kiss him intensely. Kiss him with affection. Display your love in kissing uh, the king, your loyalty to the royal king on his throne. Would you like to see a picture of this fulfilled in the New Testament? In Luke 7 and verse 37, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the, with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. The Pharisee who hosted the dinner, the name was Simon, uh, sat thinking to himself, Jesus perceived Simon sitting there thinking to himself, "You know what a horrible sinner. What a horrible way. Why does Jesus even let this this woman touch him if he only knew what she has done? Oh, he knew. And he stated to Simon, yeah, he knew he was thinking, yeah, but um, since the time I came in, Simon, she has not ceased to kiss my feet how? Folks, she, she's paying homage to the Son, the, the Messiah, the, the King who is in Jerusalem. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask her when we get to heaven, I'm going to find her somehow. going to be a lot of people there, but I'll find my way. And I'm going to ask her now Is Psalm 2 what prompted you to approach Jesus in that way? Because she knew she was a sinner. She, she knew she deserved punishment, um, but then she recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And Scripture told her, even though you're a sinner, do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. It's trying to prevent perishing. For His wrath may soon be kindled, and it may. How blessed are all who take refuge in In him. Folks, Christ is returning soon. When he does, Scripture tells us that he's going to deal out wrath, retribution, going to be against all ungodliness. You read about that in Second Thessalonians chapter one. But the king who has been installed on his throne today, he serves as a refuge to all. Everyone who will pay him homage. And scripture says, kiss the son. That means that you and I, we accept Jesus and embrace him and kiss him as fitting of a savior and a redeemer and a king. When he returns, we're told that he's going to embrace you and he's going to carry you into his kingdom on earth. But Psalm 2 says the time to kiss him is now. It's now, not when he comes. It's now. Jesus becomes God's refuge for all who will turn to him and worship. Showing adoration for his dying on the cross to save us from our sins. Because the church prays to God, who's not only our creator, also become our redeemer. Lesson this morning in adult Bible class was, was on the man possessed by, it appears, thousands of, uh, of demons. Said he is done. Jesus has, you're probably familiar with it. He has removed all of that entirely. The demons go into the swine and they run off and, and, uh, and they kill themselves in the water. And when it is all over, what do we find with the man? He's sitting there peaceful in his right mind because Jesus has removed everything that is unclean from him every trace of that which polluted him, even the swine, and moved it as far as the east is from the west, all gone. Folks, that's our Redeemer. Look at verse 25. The psalmist asks, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. This is fulfilled around somewhere around 30 AD. It's at the cross. It was there in Jerusalem where Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and uh, those in Israel surrounded Christ. They raged against God. They, They raged against His anointed one. His anointed king. And Psalm 2 describes the the scene as nations rising in an uproar in order to crucify Jesus. Those who were alive and present at that time in Jerusalem uh, during during the crucifixion, Psalm Psalm 2 suggests for us uh, they were merely a sampling of all humanity and all the kingdoms of the earth raging against God and His Son. Have you ever asked yourself, why? What did Jesus do that so angered humanity? Their rage isn't so much a response to what Jesus did. He lived his entire life sinless. Never broke any commandment. He was perfect in his nature, The rage was a result of who the people were truly inside. Folks, human rage is caused by our sinful nature. We're all born, we are all born thirsty to sin. We thirst to sin when we are born. We have a desire to sin against God. We we are by nature and by birth, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, we're children of wrath. Both by nature and by birth, we are born children of wrath. Uh, We are therefore born with just an insatiable desire in our members to sin. Can't be quenched. Can't be quenched. Uh, You may not be an axe murderer. But you've got something. You've got some bent in you uh, toward pride, perhaps demand, respect, money, can never have enough of it. There's always something that you feel you lack. Maybe sexual immorality, whatever it is. there's There's a burning desire. And the new king coronated in Zion... Changes all of that. The new litmus test or measuring stick for all humanity, for all of us, becomes the perfect righteousness of Christ at Calvary. Perfection. That's a new measuring stick. It's a walking illustration of the law, the perfection of the Ten Commandments, loving thy neighbor as thyself and the Lord God with all of our heart. And we not only fail to measure up, but we don't even want to take the test. We don't want to show up for the exam. We don't want to be reminded there's an exam. The prophet Jeremiah rightly revealed in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The New Testament says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, there is not even one. Nobody seeks after God. Uh, Paul continues, with our mouth we curse, with our feet we are swift to shed blood. Now, Scripture is not painting a flattering picture of humanity. Rather, we are exposed as being totally depraved. That doctrine came up last weekend. I was asked a question about it um, Doctrine of total depravity, folks, it doesn't mean that we are always as bad as we could possibly be. That's not what that doctrine means, nor does it suggest we can't help a little old lady across the street. Even apart from Christ, most of us have done things like that. It means, total depravity means, the natural man, the unsaved man, retains no capacity within us to reach out to God in love. The unsaved person doesn't have that capacity. Um, rather, in the sinful nature, the state to which we are all born, we love ourselves. We love ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. Nature, children of, lack, of wrath, we love to fulfill what we want. That, that's our nature. Meanwhile, as Christ walked the earth... He became the divine image of human perfection, of God's holiness manifest in flesh. Perfection in flesh. Colossians tells us in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's what we're dealing with when the kids were singing. As Jesus walked the earth, the the embodiment of God in human flesh declared, this is what we must be. You must all be conformed to this, Jesus could say. And we know Scripture commands us that we are all being conformed to the image of Christ who believe in him. Um, The natural man does not like that perfect standard, does not like that at all. We prefer sin in the unsaved state. The peoples of the nation rage because we don't want to acknowledge God's righteous standard, uh, but rather continue to embrace our particular bent of sin, whatever that may be. And we reject the divine virtue of God the Father and God the Son. You ask, how do I arrive at that conclusion? Any more evidence of that? Well, Psalm 2 and verse 1 Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords far from us. You know what God's fetters and cords mean to the sinner? The unsaved person? We're all sinners, I know that. But to the unsaved individual, do you know what God's fetters and cords mean? It means the sinful nature of humanity responds to the plan by God to install his messianic king on his throne. It responds, this here is a covert attempt to restrain us. Isn't that what you... We're forced to attend Sunday school when you're about this high. Your parents going to church to worship Christ and as a, as a little one, you're thinking, this here is a covert attempt to try to restrain me and make me nice. Anybody out there? Any hands? No, don't raise your hands, kids. That's what humanity thinks. They look at the perfect righteousness of Christ, the standard that God will hold us to at judgment. They think, oh, no, 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 no. We don't like this standard. My sin does not like this standard. No, uh, we don't like human perfection. And they said, here's what we'll do. We will break free of these cords. We'll break these bonds. We'll crucify Him." No king. We will crucify him instead. Wait, by the way, we have no king but Caesar. Isn't that what they said? Rome. A lot, a, a, allied to the world in Rome. Well, see, there's nothing good in us. I forget which Christian once said, uh, there's nothing good in me except the Holy Spirit. And even superficial attempts by an unbeliever at being good. They're just vain attempts to try and prove that I'm not entirely all that bad. I'm going to balance it out here a little bit. No, this, this psalm essentially says the whole world was gathered against God and his anointed. Verse 28, to do whatever God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. The church prays, this was not some plan that that man came up with, that that we devised as men. Noah, it's one that was revealed by the prophets in the ages past. God's choosing us in Christ from before the foundation of the world was God's plan. And Ephesians 1 verse 4 continues by saying that we would become holy and blameless. That is God's plan. In Matthew 25 and verse 24, Jesus describes himself at the final judgment. Describes himself as king, saying to his subjects, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This plan's been in place a lot longer than you and me. And regardless of how you want to explain verse 28, it is futile, it is vain to describe God as being passive in this plan of redemption. He's just looking off at a distance, hoping it all works out. Now, God is displayed not as passive, but determinative in all events leading up to the cross. He orchestrated it. it wasn't time, space, and chance either. Um, the church prays to God who is who's provident and has the power to orchestrate all of humanity. It's not just praying to the God who can create all of the universe ex nihilo. It is the same omnipotent God who can orchestrate all of humanity. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. In Israel, uh, the king was to be respected and regarded as as the sovereign in the land, the supreme in the land, uh, but God is sovereign even over the king. The point of Proverbs 21.1 is that since God can turn the king's heart, The greatest in the land? Oh, he can turn anybody's heart. Any way he wishes, just like channels of water. God hardens whom he desires. He shows mercy on whom he desires. And uh, the clay pot, the the vessel made for dishonor, cannot reply to the potter. Why'd you make me this way? Why'd you do this? No, uh, that is Herod. That is Pilate. That are those who called out, crucify him. Um, and God can take what man intended for evil and turn it into good, said Joseph. Folks, God is that powerful where he can turn and redirect even man's hearts and his steps. Remember our discussion at the beginning? about God being omnipotent, all-powerful, can do anything. But not all believe that he is omnipotent. Not all believe that he can. Some profess they do, but they don't actually believe in God's omnipotence. Uh, Rather, the the God of creation, the Lord of the universe, they say, has limited power and is not sovereign. Instead, they declare finite man is sovereign. And we determine our end. We have a better passage coming up in Acts where we can go to that at another time. What is important today is that we recognize the apostles pray to a God who is and who can. Not, Not a God who can't, verses 27 and 28. And they know that amongst the requests they asked, that they will ask next week, they know of those requests, God can do as he so wills. So I've stated on other occasions, oh why would we pray for God to give us boldness? Why would we pray for our family members and our children to be saved if God can't do anything about it? What would be the point of prayer if God isn't omnipotent, if God can't work in the heart? How could we sing, change my heart, O God? Make it be like you if God isn't all powerful. No, if God possessed no capacity to override the evil nature and to fix our hearts with a gift of faith, oh, what would we do? What would we do? I suggest we pray by, uh, close by praying for what God can do. And that's where we're going to pick up next week on the effective prayer of a righteous man, what God can do. Let's pray.